Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 10, Tip and Run. Diary, Wednesday, April the 29th. Yesterday's flying hell, but flying has to be faced. Trying to forget about it quickly, trying to lead a normal life despite the battle. I've come over to St Paul's Bay again this morning, sketched wayside shrines, strangely silent walk, no early morning raid. On the swimming platform, hardly expected life drawing on Malta. Most swimmers have discarded costumes now. 12 o'clock, still no raid, everyone apprehensive. 3pm, been drawing Uncle Bosworth, officer in charge here. With his plump figure in khaki shorts and shirt overflowing lounge armchair, he stared at me, pebble eyes through horn-rimmed specs, asked me what Huns were up to, I don't know. 3.30 now, still no raid, don't like it. Uncle sat very still, flies crawled all over him, played hopscotch on his tattooed arms, polished their feet on his bald head. He didn't move, just an involuntary twitch of his curled moustache. 4pm, eerie silence continues. 5pm, sun, hot, been swimming, still no raid, now looking at Diana's photo, always carry it. It might get buried at Naxar, difficult to believe really her, remote in some other world. A faint hum and sirens. Five tiny planes in stratosphere crawling overhead. 30,000 feet? Reconnaissance? No 109s, no 88s, no 87s. All clear sounding already. All bewildered. Some pilots say ties, Others say England raided last night. Have Huns withdrawn from Sicily? Genned up pilot. Just come down steps says no. Recce Spit reports 200 JU-88s, 150 87s, more than 100 109s and gliders. Invasion? Lull before storm, 2,000 tonnes of bombs dropped here last month, 7,000 this month. Maybe pre-invasion softening up? End of April, beginning of May. Always time for spring offensive. Gend up, pilot says, no. Says, Huns Den invaders. Tells us official figures, 192 enemy planes destroyed and damaged last month, almost 300 this month. Says, enemy can't stand such losses. But could six fighters we have left stop invasion? Gen Man says that Hun won't invade so long as we have any planes left. Why not? Horribly uneasy about silence. I'm going down to St Paul's village to paint. 11pm, Naxar in bed. Dusk at village more beautiful than ever. Painting a failure, tones and colours change too quickly. Moonlight followed dusk. Soft blue light over cubic houses. Cast long grey shadows. Saw lovers under palm trees. Thought of Diana. No news of her. Walked back along clifftops, sea pure viridian green, sky a dark cold blue with stars, uncanny silence and nostalgic smell of hay from fields. Beyond window above church can see lines of moonlit clouds. Do write to me, my darling. Sirens, sirens breathing, moaning, screaming, rising and falling, enemy planes coming, sky full of engines, bombs coming. Oh my God. Diary, Thursday, April 30th. Bombs and bombers screeched all night long. Seemed as if all pillars of air were being flattened violently, one against another, until they crushed our eardrums and left our heads ringing. Couldn't sleep. 
diary, Friday, May the 1st. Same again, no sleep at all. If enemy flies three sorties with his bombers, we've had a thousand bombers on each of the last two nights. Feels like it. Readiness at Looker, but not sent up. Akak followed five ties at 30 thou. Why sudden change in attack? Everyone uneasy. Uneasiness spreads to army this evening. Guns all loaded. Diary, Saturday, May the 2nd. Third night without sleep, bomb crash with flares descending over Looker. Whole enemy bomber force committed to night attack. CEO's just come back. He's taking us down to dawn readiness. Some new plan. All of us go. What a day it's been. I've done absolutely nothing, but I'm tired out. We found Looker a shocking mess, cratered like the moon. And not only craters, but crack, crack, crack. Delayed action bombs kept sending columns of black smoke bursting skywards from runways. Perimeter tracks, stone walls and dispersal points. Searching for our Spitfires, which had been moved to safer positions, we skirted clusters of red flags where other bombs were waiting to go off. We could see figures working desperately on the main runway, trying to fill in holes, trying to remove or defuse the bombs that were still there. All had to confess it. The aerodrome was out of action. I watched the CO and two other Spits fly off to Takali to do their readiness there, but as my Spitfire was slightly bent, I had to wait while Chiefy and the boys worked on it. I sat on a white rock, jerking violently as black thunderclap pillars shot up against the white galleon clouds moving in from the north. When my plane was ready, I received final instructions from Woody that there was no enemy activity of any kind and I was to take off and land immediately at at Takali. I climbed into the cockpit, bundled my sketching things and tin hat onto my lap and then, avoiding bomb holes, thundered off the looker escarpment. In the air, I was sorely tempted to explore the caverns of creamy cloud that slid over the top of my cockpit canopy, the first cumulus clouds that have covered the sky here, but obeying orders I closed the throttle and started the wide descending circle. Approaching Takali, I banked leisurely round the dome of Mosta Church. This third biggest dome in the world rose towards my left wingtip with a smooth, full-bellied curve, its upper surface enriched with the design of palmettes, the ornamental Byzantine crown which topped the dome sailed past my cockpit window, Then, as I floated out over the hollow-walled gardens of Mosta Village, I lowered my wheels. With the aerodrome's grass widening in front of me, I put down the flaps. I heard Woody's voice in my earphones. One plus enemy aircraft 15 miles north of Gozo. I was by then slowing and taxiing back towards the parking place. I was convinced that such a small plot was an enemy reconnaissance plane at 30 or 35,000 feet, too high and too far away to worry about. So, switching off the engine, I climbed out onto the wing route. I was astonished to see all the airmen and pilots stampeding away from me, diving from a gap in the clouds with the straight wings and underslung engines. An 88. I began my dash for cover when, snap, crack, a ringing blow seemed to pierce all the stretched membranes within me. It must only have been a few minutes later the dust was falling back. Some airmen were running to help me. There was a ringing, ringing, ringing in my head. Staggering to my feet, I must have started running, running in the same direction as before. Overwhelmed by a single desire to bury myself deep and safe in the rock, I found myself jolting down a steep rocky incline into a kind of pit. I gazed into the mouths of tunnels, but my imagination, conjuring up visions of horrors in the darkness, must have helped me to pull myself together. Hunting for deep shelter instead of developing the open-air slit-trench technique of for being bombed is the beginning of blind panic that makes one bomb-happy or round the bend. Ashamed, I turned round at once and walked back. Once on the aerodrome, with considerable pain in my ears, I felt responsible for the whole incident, despite my old friend Peter assuring me that everyone was astonished at this first tip-and-run raid they had experienced. I tried to forget the incident by talking with Peter and a friend of his called Mac, a delightful fellow, 
We discussed line abreast formation. They were telling me variations of the basic pair whereby enemy planes could be lured to destruction, but they were sent up to intercept another raid. The same happened later, and I thought it hardly fair that we looker pilots should be held on the ground. We watched a formation of 88 slide mysteriously out of the clouds, then turn steeply to drop their bombs on Valletta. We also had our first sight of Italian fighters parading the sky. Sporadic raids all day, but the CO kept us for 14 hours instead of the normal 7-hour shift. I wandered about, restless, lifeless, still ashamed of myself, and thoroughly upset by the unusual rhythm of battle. In a desperate effort to settle down, I got Johnny Plagius to act as my model. He looked much the same as at Hugh Pugh's address of welcome, glaring sideways at me with his strange eyes. I had considerable satisfaction in accepting the silent challenge of the man and imprisoning him in my pen and ink drawing. Later, I wandered along the perimeter track to sketch the untidy wreckage of a Spitfire, its undamaged propeller hung over the edge of a bomb hole while the rest of the scattered pieces protruding from the fire-stained earth looked like a squashed insect. With the dome of Moster Church behind it and with cumulus clouds riding the Mediterranean horizon, I hoped it would be a souvenir sketch of our first and last Takali visit. This evening we flew our Spitfires back to Luka. I was the last to land. I hung about in the twilight sky, hoping that the night bombing might begin early, that I might have a chance of redeeming my ignominy by shooting something down. I banked through tiny cumulus clouds that rode the blood-red sunset, but it was no good. I'm tired out. Sunday, May the 3rd. Yet another night without sleep. Luka was wrecked again, and we'd been operating from Takali, flying this time and fighting with 109s who have come back in hordes. I'm hot, sweaty and very tired, but there's no water to wash in. As our bus squeezed its way back here to Naxar, I looked out through the glassless window frame at the Maltese getting on with their simple good lives. After fighting for my own life, I loved them. Old women wearing their sombre black headdresses clutched voluminous black garments around them as they pressed themselves up against the walls or sped on in front of the bus like bats. Particularly, I loved the young girls of 13 or 14 who looked in at us with delicately innocent faces. Such fresh innocence after hell was like a draught of cool water. Tired though we all are, there's no rest. The CO back from his convalescence is buzzing like a dynamo, embroiling everyone in abundant plans and projects. People are rushing to and fro, carrying furniture, blankets and bedding. Undoubtedly, moving our rooms is the best scheme. In our new room, with simple whitewashed walls at the back of the palace, there are two other beds besides mine. One is for the CO, and the other is for the dreaded Hugh. But Hugh will be away in hospital for some time yet, for his tummy complaint, Malta Dog, is much worse. Opposite our door are real bathrooms, while the promise of water to run for half an hour each morning and evening will be a luxury. Also luxurious is the hope from time to time of electric light instead of candles and evil-smelling paraffin wicks protruding from beer bottle tops. My work in all this activity is the decoration of a huge area of wall. In fact, I'm standing in the centre of a small room that is being fitted up as a bar. Paintbrush in hand, I'm staring up at the squadron crest, a winged sword almost completed high on the wall above the bar counter. I can't complete it now for I've run out of red paint. Another job unfinished is the squadron scoreboard, three columns, headed respectively destroyed, probables and damaged. But what the devil do I put in these columns? Although we have shot down at least 15 enemy planes since our arrival, we have no official score. I don't think our intelligence officer, a bomber type, in what had originally been a bomber aerodrome, has much idea about how to follow up fighter claims. Time and again, Takali appear to have been given credit for the machines we have destroyed. I don't know what to put on this scoreboard. I'm packing up, going to join Scotty and Max. They've just carried a large settee in here and have gone through the French windows on the flat roof outside. This is certainly better.
The sun-scorched roof is enclosed by a balustrade against which I'm leaning. Although Naxar rooftops block the view south and the tall palace walls behind me block the northern and eastern skies, I'm looking down over the garden, out towards the western hills. The garden wall is smothered with purple bougainvillea and the flagstone path stretches away through the palm trees towards a wrought iron gate into the fields. Swinging round, I look back at Max and Scotty. They are sunbathing on their blankets. Babyface, more modestly clad in khaki shorts, is spreading out his bedding on the hot flagstones. I'll get my bedding and join them. I've just settled here, but the air raid sirens are screaming. The guns have opened fire and we all watch the sky. Emerging from behind the palace wall, a formation of tiny Italian bombers high in the stratosphere is moving majestically across the blue spaces between the clouds. Their pinhead shapes shining against the blue, plucked with white puffs vertically above us. Don't frighten them, calls Scotty towards the gunners. Then, tipping his dark blue Australian hat to a jaunty angle on his head, he gazes skywards again. The bombers are steering straight for Takali, but because of the rooftops, we won't be able to see the bombing. Whirr, whirr, shush, 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 rushing of air. Max snatches for his pants. Babyface and I jam in the French windows, break through and fall flat. The bombs are rushing upon us. This is the end. I hug the sofa, finding comfort in its round, plump shape. Scotty sprawls across the dusty floor, sliding until his face is within an inch of mine. I have an impression of Max's heavy body with his pants on, but the thump of his arrival is lost in the roar of bombs. A continuous, splitting roar. More coming, more coming, splitting and tearing in our ears. More, more, more. The last one arrives with a rush and a flop into the garden, a dud or a delayed action. We sit up, laughing at ourselves. We are smeared with dust. Dust fills the room and dust hangs in the air above the flat roof outside. Listen, says Max. There is shrieking and moaning and crying out from the streets below. Come on, I call to the others, for I'm instantly calm, surprisingly calm. Hastily donning my clothes, I lead the way down the stairs and out into the street. Maltese policemen are running in all directions, running out into the square and back again. There are children crying and women tossing their arms, clasping their hands, sobbing and shrieking in hysterics. No one has taken charge. Although some smashed stonework blasted out from a narrow street on my right lies across the road, a quick glimpse does not reveal excessive damage. I grab one of the Maltese men who has been standing and running and staring. Where exactly did the bombs go off? He seems delighted to have found someone in uniform. He leads me down another side street, partially blocked, into the hallway of a house, then runs away downstairs rooms thick with broken glass up the stairs crumbling first floor rooms empty so out onto the street again a gap between the houses a field yawning with bomb craters like red boils crimson earth and objects scattered everywhere pieces with long shaggy hair on them goat not human back in the street running and peering through all the open doors suddenly a hallway white with tumbled rock and rubble leads incongruously through to white daylight where are my pilots Running back into the square, I glimpse Max, Scotty and Babyface heading back towards the church. What the hell are you doing, I shout. Work for you this way. They join me in the hall of the house. We discover tall closed doors on our left, bulging out at us, bulging with the weight of wreckage. We peer through a splintered hole where a rock has burst through the panelling. The room, which is open to the sky, is packed tight with white dust and stone blocks. We hear a noise underneath it all, a ghastly, inhuman noise, muffled and strained. Then silence. Watching the rivulets of dust that curl down the sunlit walls, we hear the noise again. We are stunned by its inhuman anguish. Babyface seizes the door and, struggling with it, wrenches it open. We leap back as huge blocks, broken stones, rubble and splintered wood spew out upon us. Inside, there is a second pair of doors that we cannot move. Together, we lift a coloured marble pedestal that has been standing in the hall and batter a gap large enough for Max and me to climb through. 
That noise again, then silence. Listening intently, we decide to begin near the middle of the far wall. It's a struggle for us to lift the huge blocks, but one by one they are put to one side as we dig deeper and deeper into the white dust with our hands and fingers. One after another, we lift more blocks aside. Finally, from the rubble and other angled rocks, a round object protrudes, red on top, white with dust, white dust falling away from it as it turns slowly towards me. One red, watery eye blinks open, staring at me. More dust falls away and the thing has lips. Babyface takes over my job at burrowing. As straightening up, I yell to Scotty in the hallway to have a glass of water sent. Waiting for it, I look around the room and notice that on two matchstick beams that sag across the open sky, a great stone rock is balanced and wobbling just above our heads. I call out quickly to Scotty to stop heaving his chopper. Yes, the gap in the door must be widened to get the victim out, but he must work carefully. The glass of water, now passed through to me, looks clean and fresh. From my hip pocket, I draw out my small flask of brandy that I have always carried with me for occasions such as this, adding a little to the water. I moisten the lips of the head. Then, supporting it with my left hand, I let it drink a little. It is an old man who talks to me in broken English. He is miraculously alive, and so far, as we continue to dig, his body seems intact. A Maltese fellow has leapt down beside us. He is digging feverishly. He looks up to tell me that the old man is his father. Apparently he left him sleeping in an upstairs room. The man now pauses to wipe away the remaining dust very tenderly from his father's face. The last rocks removed, the old man is freed and we lift him onto a stretcher that has been squeezed through to us. A woman shrieking in the hallway has to be carried out in a fainting condition before we can move the old man from the building. Now I'm walking alongside the stretcher, for he talks to me and I hold his hand. We pass red-eyed neighbours who, peering from their doors, cross themselves as we approach the square where the ambulance is surrounded by an excited crowd. In the ambulance, the old man talks to me for a few minutes. Then, relaxing his grip on my hand, he dies. All last night I lay with my tin hat on my head, watching the great stones in the ceiling as the bombs screamed down on us. Look us out of action and this afternoon we operate our spitfires from Takali yet again. It is mid-morning of Monday, May the 4th, the CO is exploring somewhere in the island trying to buy drinks to stock the bar. Max, Scotty, Babyface, Pancha and Cyril are here on the hillside with me. 109s have already swept overhead. The harbour anti-aircraft barrage is going mad for a Vic formation of five Italian bombers is lumbering in from the sea. It's a crazy height to fly. 5,000 feet straight and level into the bursting shells. The gunners can't miss them. One plane wobbles violently, falling out of place, but it's climbing again and closing up. The self-control of those pilots and crews is magnificent. Bearing a charmed life, the planes are still coming on. But where are our fighters? From high in the blue, there's a noise of cannon fire. We can't see the dogfight, but our fighters have obviously been cut off by 109s. With the flickering shells having no effect at all, the bombers continue past us. If they were trying to hit the harbour, they've missed. There go their bombs, blanketing the valley in a long line towards Luka. Still unharmed, the bombers turn away behind the rising curtain of dust, their engines fading eastward. Above us, in the undisturbed blue, with the sun glaring out of it, the dogfight's still going on. We can hear long bursts of heavy cannon, the remote clatter of machine guns and the rising and fading moan of turning aircraft. Quiet now, but Cyril's seen something. Two dots curving downwards, two fighters swinging round over the bomb dust, heading towards us. Spitfires. But they're too late. The bombers have gone. Approaching our hillside, the Spitfires start to turn. I'm not particularly impressed by the way they are crossing over. 
Look out, a black shape is hurtling upon them, swerving, but it's going too fast. It can't bring its guns to bear. Its engine howls as the 109 passes low in front of us. It wavers as the pilot twists in his seat to see if he's being followed. Then, with sudden power, it bounds forward behind Naxar's square buildings, reappearing above the skyline in the distance, a tiny dot streaking away northwards. A 109 by itself? Never. Where's its number two? We all search the sky. The two spits are climbing in Vic formation, much too close together, tactically vulnerable. Why doesn't the second spit take up its line-wide abreast formation for mutual protection? If there is a second 109 watching, these spits are asking for trouble. There's nothing we can do to help them. They circle left, still in tight Vic formation, and with their engines murmuring lazily, they pass above us. The second German... With horror, we watch as a black dot dives vertically down the blue just this side of Valletta. It eases out of its dive about two miles away and now, low behind the grain store, it's rushing towards us. The Spitfires haven't seen its angled shape growing larger and larger. They can't hear its roaring engine. Turn, you fools, turn, turn. The 109 making for the second Spitfire lifts gently over our heads, then swerving towards the leader opens fire. Although the second Spit breaks violent right, the leader continues straight and level for that critical instant longer, a flash of a shell striking below its cockpit before the 109 streaks upwards and away. The Spitfire circles to the left, wobbling a little, trailing a wisp of smoke, but now as both machines level out and pass slowly over our heads, the smoke has stopped. The leader's engine is running smoothly. It flies steadily while its companion, after making an inquisitive turn towards it, moves out into a wide line abreast where it should have been all the time. The section heads towards Naxar, lucky to have escaped. But no, the leading machine trembles as if an uncertain hand is holding the controls. It steadies itself again. It's turning. Its nose is dropping. It's plunging straight down. Pull out. Pull out. Pull out. With engine roaring, it seems to hang for an instant between the twin towers of Naxar Church, then drops out of sight. Scotty puts his fingers in his ears. Wump. A sprout of black smoke is mounting higher and higher above the buildings. I turn to my pilots. Have you learned the lesson from that? I demand angrily. Number two's fault. He was too damned close. If you fly like that in our squadron, I'll shoot you down myself. The second Spitfire is circling the smoke pillar. We run, but what is the use of running? As we pass the church, we're joined by a crowd of small boys. I find myself heading a strange party through the narrow streets and out along the road beyond the town, for the plane has crashed near the army camp. Although a platoon of soldiers is called to attention as I pass, I know they salute the officer who has just died. Nearing the place, I send back the children. I also tell my pilots that there's no need for them to see the wreck. But they follow me, over the stone walls towards a gully where a dark red flame fringed with black smoke gushes up. It is a place of humped rock, disturbed red earth and burnt grass. There are a few pieces of telescoped metal. Everyone looks very tall. A sergeant major and a corporal are shoveling earth onto flames near a flat disc which may have been a wheel. Two other soldiers are searching amongst scattered fragments, while a private next to me with a rifle slung round his shoulder stares down at a twisted piece of propeller mechanism. My pilots are climbing back towards the road, but I am sketching this scene in my diary. It is silent, but for the fire which crackles and spurts. As I stare down at the wreckage, drawing unrecognisable pieces, I seem to feel someone I know... I seem to be in the presence of Mac, Peter's friend. Quietly, in inner silence, I bid him farewell. A car has drawn up on the road above us. The short, plump fig of Gracie, now a wing commander at Takali, is climbing over the rocks towards me. Two army officers have joined him, and now all four of us stare down at the pieces. As Gracie prods a large lump of earth, the soldiers hand him their finds. A wallet, a 
photograph of a girl, two postcards from England and a ring which have miraculously been thrown clear. Again, Gracie prods the lump with his foot. With horror, I realise I could have been standing on what is unrecognisably Mac's body. What do you want us to do with it? asks the army officer. Dig it in, says Gracie. No, don't dig it in, I interrupt hotly. An air battle is waging, but invasion has not yet started. The soldiers must have plenty of time to bury him. His girl is in England, I continue, or his family may want to visit his grave one day. Any monument in a cemetery will do, replies Gracie. Don't dig it in. Give him a proper burial, is my only retort. I'm much junior to Gracie. I don't know if I will be obeyed or not. Gracie's only concern is with the efforts of the living to save Malta, and he's magnificent at that. Mac's dead body is now irrelevant. I know it is a discarded thing, empty of essence, but for the sake of those who come after us, please God let a stone or a cross mark the actual spot where this moist earth is finally laid to rest. It's now afternoon. Down here at Tacali Aerodrome, we've just had another raid. Not that we're doing much good dressed up as pilots in our yellow May Wests, yet being held on the ground. I'm sitting on a rock close to the dispersal point with the wide expanse of aerodrome in front of me. Over there I can see the caves and on top of the craggy hillside the bastions, domes and palaces of Medina. Lovely buildings shimmering in the heat, gold and violet vibrating together. Below them, on the far side of the aerodrome, smoke is swirling up from a burning spitfire or perhaps an ammunition dump, for I can hear the crackling of exploding shells and bullets. But except for this and the noise of the old bus grinding its way up the hill to fetch us some tea... There is silence, and my spitfire waits for me. Life here is a mixture of horror and effort, with odd moments of reflection thrown across the pattern of battle. I want to face it four square to extract from this experience its full measure of truth, but I feel dreadfully alone. I envy my companions their magnificent spirit, but I seem to have nothing in common with their gaiety and laughter. Perhaps I feel cut off because I'm married. I'm too young to tell. I've always been bewildered by my fellow men. I've never understood them. I've always shrunk into myself. I am not by nature or structure a fighter pilot. I'm not a boxer or an athlete. I'm an artist. If only I could believe in war. It seems the most incredible foolishness. I am suspicious of intellectual explanations about it. Instead, I feel with my heart. I am appalled and saddened. If only I could live abstracted from it as an artist, but instead I have to play a violent part. Perhaps it is a test. Perhaps there is something I must solve here. Perhaps I must achieve some inner victory. But over what must I be victorious? Over my fear? Over myself? I suppose an anguish of selfishness cries out to me. Selfishly, I long for my wife, for the natural birthright of being together, for even having news of her. Two Spitfires are racing across the aerodrome, long dust plumes stopping abruptly as, lifting from the ground, they climb away into the distance. We look a pilot seem to be held on the ground again. Last night, Woody told us why. He considers that the daylight bombers are a bait to lure us into the air, into the air so that the hordes of enemy fighters that appear simultaneously may destroy the last of our machines. He considers this the final German strategy before sending in their invasion. But he won't be drawn. He sends up a couple of spits from time to time to convince the enemy that we still have some left. Otherwise, he holds us deliberately. It's an effort to convince myself that he's right, but one fact is certain. A few days ago, we only had four aircraft left. Now, due to our first-rate efforts by the airmen, the island can boast 14. 109s, look out! 109s sweeping towards us at low level. 4, 6, 10 as I run for the nearest bomb hole, shallow hole, white, much too shallow. I squirm lower into the rock as the engine roar is strung with a clatter of guns. Head down, nose bent in the hard dust, eyes closed, waiting, waiting, clatter, moaning engines. 
Others coming back, roaring lower. I must reach the trenches where the airmen are firing back. As I gather my legs under me for my 50-yard spring, I glance upwards. Two 109s just above me. Black machines, long yellow noses, helmeted pilots staring back at me along the foreshortened surface of their wings. They stare with such an indolent superiority that I feel singled out in my shallow hole for their next attack. As they sweep past, I run. Nearer and nearer to the trench, clatter, clatter, clatter. But as I jump down amongst the airmen, I notice they have put down their rifles. The airmen are gazing skywards, spitfires firing, spitfires sitting right behind the 109s. The enemy fighters opening up their engines shoot away. The spitfires just don't have the speed to follow. I sit down on my white rock again, all jumpy, red-eyed and tired. Things are pretty desperate for 109s to penetrate our weakened defences, then escape unharmed. Tuesday, May the 5th. Hugh Pugh and Woody called a conference for all squadron and flight commanders last night at Medina. Tired out, both the CO and I went over. After driving back through the bombing after midnight, I found that some damn fool had taken the candle and alarm clock from our bedroom, of all times to play a practical joke. It didn't worry the CO because he could sleep late, but I had to lead on dawn readiness. Just dared not sleep, lest I overslept, fought my tiredness for the three and a half necessary hours. In pre-dawn dark, Pancho appeared with a candle and clock, doing my job for me, he had assumed that the CO and I had both been killed in the bombing. He had taken over command. Felt bitterly angry with him, but he was right. Had to commend him for his initiative. Went to Luka, found it out of action. Same as Monday, we went to Takali. Held on ground again. Repeated attacks by 109s. Wednesday the 6th of May. Same again, no sleep. Bombed all night. Held on the ground at Takali. Itai's bombed from 30,000. Rush of air fell flat. Whole carpet of bombs fell in Atar village. 109s, but both us fireballs didn't hit any. 109s got lone spit coming to our rescue, burning fiercely it streaked down the sky, long black plume stretching out behind it before it burst on the hill. Pilot Flight Lieutenant Johnson, Takali type, bailed out. His fourth parachute jump here, horribly burned this time. Inum Tafa Hospital. Thursday, May the 7th. Same again. Brutal night bombing. No sleep. 109s brought bombs to plaster us. Thought they were long-range tanks. Seemed to release them by firing their guns. It is Friday, May the 8th. I'm trying to write a letter to my wife, but what can I say to her? I have only battle to write about. Even now, just after lunch, bombs are screaming down. The whole place is shaking with the crash of explosions. There's a continuous stuttering bark of bursting shells. I'm still feeling sick from this morning when Woody, in utter exasperation, sent us all into the air. A hell of a fight. The Italians were bombing us at the same time. There was a gush of black smoke along the Naxar hillside beyond my wingtip. The fight took place at low level all round Takali, with Spitfires chasing 109s up into the sun, while other 109s dived in from other directions, a free-for-all. But despite being outnumbered four or five to one, only one of the Hurricanes, whose landing we were trying to cover, was hit. I glimpsed it staggering to the ground, crashing on its belly on the edge of the aerodrome. The pilot got out unhurt. Tilly destroyed two enemy fighters, but I was not much good. Chased a 109 up a rocky gorge into what was probably a trap, for two other machines pounced upon me. Watching the 109s, I almost collided with the bridge that spanned the gorge. I glimpsed my original 109 swerving back to the aerodrome, probably laughing at my predicament, when an ascending glow of Beaufort shells blew his tail right off. He hit the ground in a pillar of smoke near the brewery chimney. Total this morning was five 109s definitely destroyed with another five probables, perhaps ten altogether, without loss to ourselves except for the damaged hurricane. Invasion may be imminent, our island may be on its last legs, but if all goes well, very different events will happen in the next two days. 
Even now, as I lean on this table, three aircraft carriers are nosing their way into the Mediterranean towards us. 64 reinforcement Spitfires will fly off their decks at dawn tomorrow morning. This is the first step of a plan to run a convoy through, for our need is more extreme than urgency. Food and fuel only for a few weeks longer. Our ammunition shortage, for we will run out within two or three days, is so extreme that it cannot wait for the convoy. It is therefore planned that the Welshman, a very fast merchant cruiser laden with ammunition, shall run unescorted to our island during darkness tomorrow night. As it is planned that the daylight unloading of the ammunition shall take place under the protective umbrella of our newly arrived fighters, everything depends on the Spitfire's safe arrival and our ability to refuel them and get them into action quickly. Without doubt the Germans will strike immediately and having lost one third of our April reinforcements within the vulnerable refuelling period, we have made careful preparations for the reception of this lot. These Spitfires already know their destinations, Lucca, Takali or Halfa. On the perimeter tracks or in the fields surrounding these aerodromes, special pens have been built for their protection. Alongside each pen will be two slit trenches for stores of fuel and ammunition and ground crews respectively. Further stores and meals will be delivered to each pen by army lorry, for we are to stand by from dawn to dusk as long as the battle lasts. Each of us pilots has his own crew, and as there is apprehension in some quarters that airmen may run off to deep shelters in the heavy bombing that is expected, we have been given orders to shoot them if they make the attempt. Ridiculous order. The airmen are grand. Each new Spitfire arriving will have a large number clearly painted on its side. We each have our own particular aircraft to meet. No matter what bombs are falling at the time, we are to run out onto the open aerodrome to guide it back to its own specially built pen. Whatever rank the new pilot may be, we oust him and climb in ourselves. He is under new orders. Refueling must be as swift as possible and we stand by for immediate takeoff. We must expect to take part in every raid, six or seven sorties a day, without relief. If our plane is damaged in combat, we are not to return to the pens in the front line, but take it along new taxi tracks through fields over rocky hills and valleys to repair pens built in the rear. If we are not wounded, we are to return to the aerodrome at once and there take over a more junior pilot's plane. At all times, the senior Malta pilot will have priority in flying the dwindling number of Spitfires that remain. As a flight commander, I must expect to fly to the bitter end. It is with this knowledge about what is going to happen that I'm trying to write this last letter to my wife. I suppose it's because I'm exhausted with little or no sleep for so very long that a weak, unaccountably childish, cowardly part of my nature quails at the future. It seems to cry out inside me, leave us alone, don't send us any more Spitfires, we're doing quite well as we are. I know this inner protest illogically ignores the facts of starvation and the ammunition shortage, I suppose it's rooted in fear that the Germans will attack us more fiercely than ever. I suppose it's my imagination breeding terror from what has already happened here. I must pluck out my timidity. This must be faced, but God, I'm tired. As I lean back in my chair, there's a growing sound emerging from the bomb bursts, a great roar of German aircraft passing low overhead, a long clatter of machine guns. A Maltese waiter running across the room knocks against the table. My fountain pen falls to the floor. Damn him, damn him, damn him. He has, yes, he has broken the nib, the pen that I use for all my drawing. How am I going to draw now? I can feel my hot temper rising inside me. The Maltese looks all upset, pale, cringing with his elbows lifted in apology. I am standing up stiffly tense, staring down at his silly white face. Try and control this monstrous anger. The CO enters. He chuckles with laughter. I am in no mood to be laughed at, so I swing round towards him, more furious than ever. I've just been machine gunned in the garden, he tells us, by the rear gunner of a JU-87. But look, he missed. 
The CO holds up his round blue ceremonial hat, bullet torn on one side. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.